We also have to figure out whether or not it's a violation of the second commandment to interject the first commandment into the second commandment. We'll work all that out. As I was uh, going over my sermon notes this morning, I was started thinking about when I was a kid fishing on the Redondo Pier. I must have been about eight or nine years old. And I put an entire squid on my line for bait, like a full-on squid. And uh, some old salty dog fisherman came up to me and he said, you know, son, you got enough bait on there to choke a horse. <laughs> and, uh, I, but I caught a big old carbina, you know. So I have done that with my sermons. As I was looking at my sermon notes, I've got enough material here to choke a horse. I have been thinking along the lines of writing a sermon entitled, How to Listen to a Sermon. And uh, not how to write one, because I'm, I'm not changing, I've decided. I'm, but how to listen. And I, I think among those things are really for you to kind of like uh, glean from the message, especially today. There's a lot of material. Glean from the message are things that really jump out at you, that the Holy Spirit just goes, these are things I want you to focus upon. And I, I try to make things as easy to listen to as possible, but I'm going to tell you, we got a lot of material today. And so it is my prayer, though, nonetheless, that it'll be edifying and that you'll be able to stay focused through it. We are looking at Revelation chapter 11. We're only going to really dial in on verses 1 and 2 this morning, but I want to read verses 1 through 11 because that is what they call a pericope or like a thought contained, and we're going to spend a number of weeks kind of um, seeking to wade through what is really taught in these 14 verses. I've entitled uh, today's message, A Measured Temple. Revelation 11, we're going to read 1 through 14, hear now the word of God. Then I was given a reed like a measuring rod. And the angel stood saying, rise and measure the temple of God, the altar, and those who worship there. But leave out the court, which is outside the temple, and do not measure it. For it has been given to the Gentiles, and they will tread the holy city underfoot for 42 months. And I will give power to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands standing before the God of earth. And if anyone wants to harm them, fire proceeds from their mouth and devours their enemies. And if anyone wants to harm them, he must be killed in this manner. They have power to shut heaven so that no rain falls in the days of their prophecy. And they have power over waters to turn them to blood and strike the earth with all plagues as often as they desire. When they finish their testimony, the beast that ascends out of the bottomless pit will make war against them and overcome them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which is spiritually called Sodom and Egypt, where also our Lord was crucified. Then those from the peoples, tribes, tongues, and nations will see their dead bodies three and a half days and not allow their dead bodies to be put into the graves. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them, make merry, and send gifts to one another because these two prophets tormented those who dwell on the earth. Now after the three and a half days, the breath of life from God entered them and they stood on their feet and great fear fell on those who saw them. And they heard a loud voice from heaven saying, come up here. And they ascended to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies saw them. In the same hour, there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. In the earthquake, 7,000 people were killed, 
and the rest were afraid and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe was past. Behold, the third woe is coming quickly. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we do pray that as we gather in your holy name, that by your word, by your spirit, by the sacraments, by the praises, by the prayers, you would continually, Father, mold us into the image of Jesus. Help us, Father, to think your thoughts after you. Help us, Father, that every aspect of who we are would emulate and imitate that which we find in the, in the, in the person of Christ. Help us, Father, even as we look at this passage, to view all things from the mirror of eternity. Help us, Father, to be heavenly-minded people, understanding who is upon the throne. Help us, Father, to know you more fully, know who you are, know what you have done, know what you are doing, what you will do, and help us to know your call in our lives, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, an atheist friend of mine rejoiced last year at the site. It was a photo, pretty public photo, of a large mass of people bowing before the representatives of a current social justice movement. It was in this big area, and everybody was bowing, and the leaders of this movement were standing before them, and everybody was genuflecting before these leaders. My atheist friend indicated that such a genuflection, such a bowing, finally gave him hope in the future of our country. In the same thing that I found horrifying, he found so encouraging. It is, I think, a very interesting sociopolitical dynamic that a people in the midst of apostasy, and by apostasy I'm talking about a people who are making a very determined effort to turn their back on the things of God, become very open to almost any shiny ideology, almost anything that will sideline Christ because become something they're excited about. Uh, G.K. Chesterton, a man who is very worthy of quotation, said this. He said, when a man stops believing in God, he doesn't then believe in nothing. He believes anything. The flip side of that, you know, you've got, you've got an apostate people kind of going, whatever, whatever sidelines Jesus... I'm going for. The flip side of that is that citizens of evil nations tend to welcome the rule of a wise and loving and benevolent triune God over the whim of man. Once they've experienced what man has to offer, they'll travel hill and dale to find a nation that is willing to bow the knee to the triune God who lives. We read in Scripture how the surrounding nations of Israel felt just that way. At least that's what God said they would feel. In Deuteronomy 4, 6 through 8, we read, Therefore be careful to observe them. Them, the antecedent to them would be the statutes and judgments of God, the laws of God. Therefore be careful to observe them, for this is your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples who will hear all these statutes and say, Surely, this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us, for whatever reason we may call upon him? 
And what great nation is there that has such statutes and righteous judgments as are in all this land which I set before you this day? Now, when we do our little uh, apologetic seminar in the kingdom of God, we'll recognize that Israel, the old, Israel is the Old Testament church. It's the kingdom of God. And so somebody might say, well, that's people speaking of the church. And at some level, that may be true. But what influence should the church have in the nation in which it lives? Would we not all rather be a nation of wise and understanding people where those who are outside could say, I want to be in a nation that bows the knee to the living God and observes the God's statutes over the statutes of man? Isn't it obvious that the statutes of man end in devastation and disaster? Yet this is what we're called to be. This is what we're called to do. And what you see throughout the course of history is people will gravitate toward that. So you have people in apostasy going, anything but Jesus. And you have people in darkness going, where is a God who will rescue us, who has these wonderful laws and statutes? I would argue that this dynamic is very much in force in the passage that we're looking at in Revelation chapter 11. To say that Jesus came into his own and his own received him not, I would argue, even though it's biblical, is an understatement. I mean, we tend to think, oh, they didn't really like him very much. No, he's greeted with vitriol. The entire community approached him. At his birth, they wanted to kill him. Their entire ministry, they plotted to put him to death. The, the, the whole interaction by that religious culture, culture with Jesus can be explained in no other way than diabolical. When I say diabolical, I'm talking about, in the true sense of the word, Diablo. What does Diablo mean? Yeah, the devil. And we'll see that when we get to chapter 12. Very much the devil is involved in what is taking place. So Jesus comes into this culture, and the culture, the religious culture, as I had just mentioned, is doing anything but Jesus. We want to get rid of Jesus. Well, I'd also argue that the heart of this diabolical religious cultist revolved around the temple. You can't read your New Testament, you can't read your Gospels without recognizing how much evil things took place revolving around the temple. And this chapter that we're reading right now opens with a reference to it. And I think it would do us well to grasp, what are we talking about with this measurement of a temple? Now, I feel like I've said this many times in, uh, as we go through Revelation, how many paths of disagreement there are. You, you'll hear me say that. Yeah, this is where a lot of guys say this, this, and this, and this, and which is one of the reasons why the sermons have been a little longer than they normally are, because I kind of feel like I want you to all be informed in terms of not just my view, but the views that are out there. But here... In Revelation chapter 11, it's not just merely paths of disagreement. I mean, they're there. But there is a general consensus that this chapter, of all chapters, is the hardest one to understand. It and maybe chapter 20. We're now in one of the most difficult chapters in all of Scripture to understand. So much so that over 100 years ago, Dean How, uh, Henry Alford, who's the dean of Canterbury, made this statement about this chapter in Revelation. He said, no solution has ever been given to this portion of Revelation. Well, I don't know if I'm really ready to throw in the towel here at this point, but I, I'm saying this because I want us all to appreciate the difficult nature of the chapter that we're examining. Now, with that in mind, here's what I'd like to do. What I want to do this morning is a brief synopsis of not the whole chapter, but 
the 14 verses, just, just to kind of get the lay of the land, you know, so just to, as a metaphor, you know, the way you approach the Bible is sometimes you go over the Bible uh, in a commercial jet at 35,000 feet looking at the whole thing, sometimes you get in a crop dusting plane and you get kind of low, and then sometimes you just get down there and you got to put your fingers in the dirt, okay, and we're going to try to do all of that, so first... We're going to kind of get in the jet and fly over these 14 verses. And then when we do that, what I'd like to do is tell you, first of all, what I think it means. And secondly, and perhaps more importantly, is how is this ministering to us? I don't want this to be an academic pursuit. This needs to be something where you walk away going, God God has sanctified me here. I have learned of God in this passage. And I have learned what his call is in my life in this passage. And if we don't do that, then we're really not fulfilling our obligations in terms of meeting as a church. Well, let's take a look here uh, in order to get the synopsis, the big picture. What we have in these 11 verses is a continuing conversation between John and this colossal angel with, remember, he has one foot on the land and one foot under the sea, who very may very well be Jesus himself. We're in the midst of the sixth trumpet. So this sixth trumpet judgment that is taking place. The seventh is going to come later in this chapter. And John is no longer just a conveyor of the information. He's actually become part of the drama, right? He's been called to eat the little book. And in a minute, he's going to be called to measure, do a a measurement. That, That little book we had talked about being the prophecy of another prophecy that was probably relating to Rome because it's of many many nations and peoples and tongues and kings and so forth. Now we see John is called to take a measurement here. He's to measure the temple. People generally stop there, but he's not just called to measure the temple. He's to measure the temple, the altar, and the worshipers. So, you know, he's in here, stand up. Frank, we're going to take a measurement, you know. So he's measuring a lot of things, not just one thing. We are told that he's not to measure something as well, the outer court. And then he says that yes, that outer court is going to be tread underfoot by the Gentiles for 42 months. By the way, we're not going to get into the 42 months or the three and a half years or the 1260 days this morning. It just, that was like two squid on the line. It was just too much. Okay, but we will get to that because that continues throughout the course of, of the chapter. We are then introduced to one of the most enigmatic parts of the cast of characters in all of Revelation, and that is the two witnesses. You've all heard all the speculation about the two witnesses. They're going to prophesy for 1,260 days, which is the same amount of time that the, the Gentiles will be treading the outer court underfoot. And there's some, but not a great deal of identification of who these two witnesses are. I'm going to uh, not today, we'll talk another time later about at least what I think those two witnesses represent and what that means. But we are all told this, that nobody will be able to harm them, at least for a while, and that they also have significant power. Nonetheless, when they finish, quote, finish their testimony, they will be killed. And then here, for the first time in all of Revelation, we're introduced to another character the beast. So here we're introduced to the two witnesses. Here we're introduced to the beast of Revelation. And the beast is the one who makes war against the two witnesses and kills them. 
And not only are they killed, they become the object of public dishonor. Their dead bodies will lie in the streets of the great city. This great city, by the way, is spiritually called Sodom. It is spiritually called Egypt. But we're also told in this chapter, it is where our Lord was crucified. So what city is this? It's Jerusalem. Okay, so we get a little information there that helps us with other portions of the Revelation. And they will remain in this display of public humiliation, not for three and a half years, but for three and a half days. So we have this shorter period of time. They're laying in the streets, and we just have to know, I mean, again, we'll get into this in more detail another time, that according to the Scriptures, for you to just lay in the streets dead was not something that honored who you are. It was meant for dishonor. Think of Wycliffe. Think of uh, Huss. Think of these pre-reformers whose bodies were exhumed and thrown into the rivers and what have you. It's, it's this idea that it's not just, we don't want them just dead. We want them publicly dishonored. And the response of the community is to make merry. They're going to celebrate. They're going to give gifts to one another. They're so happy that these two witnesses who, quote, tormented them, and we'll get into that, not today, um, are finally put to death. But then after three and a half days, the Spirit of God is breathed into them and they stand up. And then great fear falls upon all who see them. Then they hear a voice calling them to ascend in the cloud. They're brought into heaven and there's a great earthquake killing 7,000 people. A tenth of the city falls and then the rest we see give glory to the God of heaven. That's what we see happening <laughs> for 14 verses. You can imagine there's so much material here. But we're just going to look this morning at, because I think if we don't understand verses 1 and 2, we're certainly not going to understand the rest. Okay, so let's look at just verses 1 and 2 this morning. Then I was given a reed like a measuring rod, and the angel stood saying, Rise and measure the temple of God, the altar, and those who worship there. But leave out the court which is outside the temple, and do not measure it. For it has been given to the Gentiles, and they will tread the holy city underfoot for 42 months. Well, if you go outside your house and you see somebody standing out there, usually with a neon vest or something, and they've got this um, tripod, as they're standing in the street, they've got a tripod with some fancy gadget on it, which, interestingly enough, is called a theodolite. I'm like, wow, that sounds very biblical, but I couldn't. I did an etymology on that, which sidetracked me for 45 minutes, you know, <laughs> only to find that there's really no clear understanding of where it comes from. But I'm like, theos means God, and, you know, somebody's like, doulos means serving, so servant, so you're serving God. But then other people are like, that's not what it means at all, so I'm just, nonetheless, if you see that happening, you know that they're measuring something, right? They're taking some calculation generally with the intent of defining a boundary, right? They're kind of going, this is yours, this is theirs, this is a property line or what have you. And oftentimes with the intent to either build something or demolish something or both and to do so accurately. You know, they're going to be like, you know, your property line is not where you thought it was, right? It's over here and not over there. That's what John is doing. John is called to go out there and do some measurements, now, measurements in the Bible can mean a few things. It can mean destruction, Amos 8.2, you're measured for destruction. 
It can mean, as we said, rebuilding and protection. Zechariah 2, I'm going to read 2, verses 2 and 5 in just a second. It can mean protection. Um, It can mean both. And here, it very likely means this idea of dividing that which is holy from that which is profane. You're you're making a division here. This is holy. And we can kind of tell that just by the passage itself, right? Something is going to happen in verse 2 that's not happening in verse 1, right? They're going to be trampled, trampled underfoot by the Gentiles for 42 months. That's going to happen where? In the outer court where he's told, don't measure that, measure this. So we kind of get this idea, even within the context of the passage, what the measurement actually means. But my t- one of my takeaways from this is the recognition that we have a God who simply surveys. He surveys our hearts. He surveys what's taking place. One of my favorite Old Testament passages is found in 2 Chronicles 16.9, for the eyes of the Lord search to and fro throughout the land to strengthen the hearts of those who are fully committed to him. And I'm sure that's not the verse, the translation up there. I actually, by the way, you notice sometimes we have a different translation up there than what's being read here? That, they used to bug me. Don't let that bug you. What that should tell you is, that should actually help you. Because when you see a different word, that should kind of go, okay, I wonder why the translators chose that word rather than that word. Okay, and that, to me, I'm like, then well, you want to go to the Greek or the Hebrew and go, what, what's the actual word? So I think there's some, some value to that. Okay, that's a little bit of a sidetrack, and i got to not do that this morning of all mornings. Nonetheless, we have to recognize that there is a God who is surveying history. He's surveying our hearts. He is taking measurements. Now, John is measuring the temple, the altar, and the worshipers. Now, here... Here's where the interpretations just explode beyond, well beyond what we can handle in one sermon. But I will say this because it is the most popular view and I want to address this because many of your Christian friends, this is going to be the way they read this and I think you need to be ready to answer that and understand that because I think the most popular contemporary view is that this is the future rebuilt temple where Jesus will dwell, an actual temple, where Jesus will dwell after the rapture, where animal sacrifices will actually be made before him. Now, I I have to say, right there, I'm like going, whatever led you to that conclusion, you need to go back and rethink your steps. And one of the few conversations I ever was able to have with J.I. Packer, who was just a brilliant theologian, I asked him, I go, can you explain to me what you think about the Christology of the idea that there would be the resurrected Christ in a temple where animals will be worshipped before him? And J.I. Packer, who at the time seemed to be 90 years old, I thought he was going to have a myocardial infarction. I mean, he just was like, that system that believes it. And he's like such a mellow old, you know, British-speaking guy, but he's like, that is just such a poor way of understanding our Bibles, that, that there's going to be lambs killed in front of the Lamb of God? He's like, that, that must be unacceptable. But you need to know, that is the popular view today. There will be a rebuilt temple. Jesus will dwell in that temple during the future millennium where animal sacrifices will be made before him. Friends, I'm going to tell you, this is where we have the proverbial Procrustean bed. Do you know what the Procrustean bed is? 
it's, a, it's from mythology where, you know, this giant Procrustus, he, would have big old, he had a bed, and he would capture people. And if they were too tall, he would cut their feet off to make them fit in the bed. And if they were too short, he would stretch them out. Because the one thing that you need to maintain is that the bed is what's right. And that's what we have going on right now. We have people reading their Bibles with a system of doctrine stuck in their head that whatever they read, they need to cater to that system of doctrine. We have a system of doctrine right now where the vast majority of the people in our culture believe that there's going to be a rebuilt temple when there's not one verse in the entire New Testament that talks about a rebuilt temple other than when Jesus says, tear it down, I'll rebuild it in three days, and John says he's talking about his own body. That's the only place. And yet we have an entire system built around the idea that, no, 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 it's got to be rebuilt because here it's got to be measured. And since it's got to be measured, it's got to be rebuilt. Now, I think it's a very, very unhealthy preoccupation. At very, at very least, an unhealthy preoccupation. I was uh, invited to a baseball game, and some professional baseball game, and with a whole big group of people, and I sat down to this, next to this very nice couple. And they um, somehow found out I was the pastor. You know, and, I, and I don't mind this at all, by the way. If, you know, it's kind of like, oh, Q&A here, during the, I, which I enjoy. I feel like that adds a dimension to what it, an event where we're, now we're talking about significant things, right? So they asked me, you know, so do you think the temple's going to be rebuilt? Are they rebuilding the temple? Are they going to rebuild? You know, so I, they had heard, I guess, that they were about to rebuild the temple, you know, some intelligence report or something. And I go, you know what? I do think it's already been rebuilt. I think it's the body of Christ. And it was such a buzzkill, man. <laughs> they were like, because they knew the verse. They're like, yeah, well, yeah, yeah, that. But no, I'm talking about, and I'm like, okay, Here's the difficulty here. The temple, which was designed to teach us about Christ, has supplanted Christ, has taken, you know, at least is in war with Christ in terms of that which we want to focus upon. The temple was designed for that. And because, by the way, because it was getting in the way of that back in the first century, God, by his providence, had it destroyed. And yet we today have another preoccupation with the rebuilding of it. And I think it's a very unhealthy, not to mention unbiblical, preoccupation. Well, there are other, I think, more tenable options. I can't go into all the options of what is going on here. Some people believe the measuring of the uh, temple is the fate of the church later on in a hostile world. Some people say it's the um, salvation of the Jews at the end of history and so forth. I mean, I think these are a little bit more biblically acceptable, but I don't really think it's any of those things. But I will, make, I will point this out to you, though. And at some point, this might be important. I think that Revelation 11.1 contains very strong evidence for an early date of the writing of the Revelation. Now, you, you might go, what's the big deal? It's kind of a big deal if you're really studying the Revelation. Was it written in 95 or was it written in, 60, in the 60s? And I would say this is internal evidence for it having been written early for a couple of reasons. If you want to take the Bible literally, I'm, and I'm, I don't take this temple, I'll tell you right now, literally in that sense. But if you were to take it literally, you have to now have a rebuilt temple for it to be measured. And so if, if, if there's no, if it's written in 95, there is no temple. What's John going to measure? John's got nothing to measure. And not only that, you're like, going, well, yeah, but it, don't people take it spiritually? As I'm going to show you in just a minute, I do. 
But nonetheless, the fact that the temple is mentioned with no mention whatsoever to the fact that it had been destroyed is remarkable. I mean, the, the argument from silence is deafening. I think we don't realize how central the temple was to Jewish worship if we think in Revelation there's not going to be one reference to the fact that it's already destroyed. There's no reference to it already having been destroyed. You know why? Because it had not yet been destroyed. Matter of fact, the Revelation is about it getting destroyed. Well, it would appear to me, now I've told you a lot of things that I don't think it is, but it would appear to me based upon the context and the somewhat odd fact that he's measuring not just the temple, but he's also measuring the altar. And he's measuring, we don't ever see that in the popular you know, uh, uh, commentaries on this, but he's also measuring the people that God here is creating a line of protection for his own during the soon coming destruction of Jerusalem and the end of the Old Covenant. We've already seen this. We've seen this with the sealing of the 144,000. God is kind of going, there, the imagery was, you're going to seal, seal my people so that when this takes place, they do not get judged in history, which, by the way, they didn't. And here we see another example of, of uh, the same thing. God's going, measure this. On uh, this side, these people will be protected. On the other side, they're going to be trampled underfoot for 42 months. So we see it kind of right in the context of what's taking place here. We see a very similar notion in Zechariah. As I mentioned earlier, I was going to read this, just two verses. Zechariah chapter 2, verses 1 and 5. You can read the whole thing at another time. And I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, a man with a measuring line in his hand. So we see this measurement taking place. And then it talks a little bit about it. And then in verse 5, we read this. And I will be to her a wall of fire all around, declares the Lord, and I will be the glory in her midst. In other words, something's going to happen, but I'm going to create a wall of fire around my people, and nobody will be able to touch them. And I would argue that that's what's happening here. This temple, this altar, these people, God is creating a wall of fire around them, and what's happening in the outer court is not going to happen to them. It's something we've already seen numerous times in the Revelation. There's such consistency here. I wish you all had the same amount of time that I have to study this because you begin to see things and patterns over and over and over. And you realize that John isn't just going crazy writing stuff, which a lot of people think he's doing in Revelation. There's like order and he's repeating himself and he's making things much more clear as we go through it. In short, I believe these two verses are speaking of the true believers often referred to in the New Testament as what? the temple, right? We are called the temple of God. I think that's what he's talking about. Paul uses that numerous times to describe believers. And I think the altar, the altar should remind us what should mark our lives out, that we're living sacrifices. And the worshipers, well, again, a very clear passage in Romans 12.1 is we are living sacrifices in order to engage in spiritual worship. I think that's what he's saying. He's going, you know what? The true temple, who are truly God's people, truly worshiping the true God, measure them and protect them from what's going to happen in the outer court. I mean, I don't know about you. For me, that becomes kind of obvious as you read that. But here's something also, just in terms of your own Bible study, you know, because I was talking about 
how to listen to a sermon, how to write a sermon, how to read your Bible. One of the things I think important in reading your Bible is you need to allow the clear to help you understand the unclear. It's called the analogy of faith. The clear helps us interpret the unclear. What's really clear in the Bible, and whether you agree with my interpretation of this, these two verses or not, is theologically it's very clear that Christians are the temple of God. It's very clear that we are to be living sacrifices, and it's very clear that we are to be people who engage in spiritual worship. So you take that, and you bring that to Revelation chapter 11, and I think it becomes much clearer. What we don't want to do is redefine our entire system of theology based upon a book as enigmatic as the Revelation. We need to read the Revelation with an understanding of the other 65 books. And when we read the Revelation with an understanding of the 65 books, I think the Revelation becomes a lot clearer. But a lot of people do just the opposite. As one guy said, you know, the book of Revelation is like all textbooks. All the answers are in the back. And what he does, what this particular guy did was he, he had his interpretive revelation and then reinterpreted the rest of the entire Bible based upon the revelation. That's turning the analogy of faith upon its head. That's taking that which is unclear and re reinterpreting that which is clear. We don't want to do that. Well, add to that that it is emphasized at the end of Revelation that in the new heavens and the new earth, there is no temple. So the, the whole use of the temple has come to an end. And so we don't want to have our focus be upon that. This passage does not merely speak of God's preserving of his bride, as I have just mentioned, but it also carries a message of judgment, right? Verses 1 and 2. Protect them. They're going to be trampled underfoot for 42 months. I've seen so often there is this reversal of fortune. I mean, I hope it doesn't escape our notice that the temple, if I could put it this way, the temple itself has been excommunicated. There's this, we saw a minute ago, right? You know, the, the city of God has called, is now called what? Sodom and Egypt. Jerusalem is called Sodom and Egypt. The temple itself. Give, give me Jesus' definition of what was going on in the temple and what those people were doing. The temple is a what? a den of thieves. I mean, you couldn't have harsher words. Can you imagine, and I pray to God this would not happen, that some prophet would walk in here and go, Branch of Hope is a den of thieves. This is no church. The, the Spirit of God isn't here. The Word of God isn't here. The things that you're using, the baptism and the Lord's Supper, your sacraments, they, they, are, they are idols that you guys are using to the destruction of your own souls and so forth. Boy, you better, we'd all be ready to, to quickly repent. And in a certain sense, a prophet of God does do that when we open our Bibles and we are corrected by it. But Israel wasn't going to have it. Jerusalem wasn't going to have it. They were a den of thieves. And even though many of the, obviously, the, the, the lion's share of the early Christians were Jews, the people of Israel, as a people, rejected Christ. And that's what's kind of taking place here and now we're seeing what's going to happen to them. They're not going to survive the measurement. They're going to be outside the court, and not inside. Now, as I said, the Israelites, which have been compared to Sodom and Egypt, and I would argue Jericho all through Revelation, here, at least what popped into my mind, and you'll, I'll see if you think the point is well made, here they become like the Babylonians, which is another land in the Old Testament that is kind of uh, synonymous with anti-Christian thinking and anti-Christian behavior. 
they were utilizing the implements and vessels of God and the temple itself in an unholy and unworthy manner. That's what had happened. The temple itself had become an abomination of desolation. Somebody asked me in Q&A not too too long ago, do you have any example of Israel utilizing silver and gold and what have you in an idolatrous way? Yes, their entire ministry was marked by utilizing the implements that God had determined for holy use in an unholy way. Their whole ministry had become idolatrous. Well, let me just stop there because, this is, again, this is not a history lesson. My question for you and my question for me is, is it possible that churches today can fall into the same trap? Can the glitter of our religious surroundings, whether it's artifacts, whether it's the building, or maybe some type of religious culture of acceptability, I remember I wasn't raised in the church, and I remember going to church and feeling very out of place. I remember kind of sitting there. I remember I had to borrow my dad's tie, one of those very cool thin ties, you know, (laughs) out of the 40s. And I remember going to a church, and I didn't know when to stand up. I didn't know when to sit down, and I looked around, and I'm like, wow, I don't really fit in here. These people seem so together. I actually got a job in that church years later, in ministry, and not to be mean-spirited, because I think this is true of any church, they were anything but together. You know, it's this idea that, wow, this looks this way, but you sit down with them, and all of a sudden, blah, it comes on out, right? Every skeleton and every closet, and everybody has them. It's just, you know, we are the church of filthy rags that God is making clean, and if we think we're anything but that, we are sadly mistaken, But that's something that you can get trapped in. You can get trapped in this idea that, no, I've reached the level of acceptability. I'm one of them and so forth. And we need to be careful that those things, this idea that I've arrived, that I'm good enough, or that we've kind of got the building we want, or we finally got this or that, that those things don't blind us to Christ himself. Because that's what the enemy tries to do. And he'll utilize anything shiny and good You know, it's been said, the greatest enemy to best is good, right? And so we need to be careful along those lines. But I thought we'd just take a minute to examine Babylon and how Babylon, which I had mentioned, is a nation symbolic with anti-Christian behavior, ended the way they did. And it was in an interaction with Israel. So you've got Babylon, which is, you know, the pagan And then you've got Israel, which is the church, and you've got some interactions taking place. So we're going to do some Old Testament Bible study. I initially was just, we were just going to read for a long time here. But again, it was just too many squids on the line. And I, so we're going to summarize what took place in order for Babylon actually to end the way it ended. And the whole time we should be asking ourselves, is it possible that we can get caught up in that same trap? So let's do this little summary here, because the trajectory that led to Babylon being destroyed starts way before it actually is destroyed. Right? There's this long history that takes place. And we read in 2 Kings 20, verses 12 through 20, that Hezekiah, who was Hezekiah? He was a king of Israel, good king, bad king. He's a good king. He's a good king. He's not one of the bad kings. 
but he's ill, and he gets some visitors from Babylon. So these visitors, they come in, and he's not feeling very well. So maybe, just maybe, he's a little vulnerable, right? Are you inclined when you don't feel well to kind of go, yeah, whatever, right? So we, that's part of this. Maybe, maybe he didn't have the elders we have, right? He didn't have other people going, look at, look at, I know you don't feel good. You stay home. But he doesn't do that. He gets these visitors from Babylon. And even though he was sick, apparently he wasn't too sick to give them a tour, right? So what does he show them? He shows them all of these implements that were designed for the holy worship of God. He shows them basically everything, but he doesn't stop. He brings them in, and they begin to see those things that God had determined to be used in a very sacred and consecrated and holy manner, and they just become, these things become just part of the tour. And he shows them all these things as if it's no big deal. Well, right away, what I thought of was this idea of many liberal churches where you see celebrities and politicians invited right into the pulpit. Now, now maybe, don't get me wrong, you could be a celebrity and have your MDiv and be ordained. But I'm not talking about those celebrities. I'm talking about somebody who's in the pulpit by virtue of their celebrity status. Well, that guy was MVP this year. Let's get him in our church. I mean, I used to get, I'd get, I'd get invited. Hey, we're going to have this big event. And this baseball, first baseman's going to be the speaker. I'm like, why do I want to listen? Is he going to talk about playing first base? No, it's a religious thing. I'm like, why do I want to listen to a first baseman tell me about, I mean, I, I want to, I'd rather listen to R.C. Sproul than the first baseman. But you, this idea, no, 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 he'll attract people. And so this idea that you're like going, yeah, you got to be careful what you're, who you're covenanting with in order for you to somehow get the appeal factor in your church. So I, I, that jumped to, in my mind, you know, when Hezekiah is kind of going, come on in, you guys, and become part of what's going on here. He should have known better. And he's confronted by the word of God, which in this case was Isaiah. And Isaiah tells Hezekiah that the Babylonians that you just brought in to view these holy things, they're going to take all of those things to Babylon. And not only that, they're going to take your kids as well. You've just invited future destruction to your people, really in what amounts to be, as you're reading it, kind of a social faux pas, right? Like, yeah, you shouldn't have done it. But he didn't grasp. There was no fear of God at this point. Even in a good king, he's like, no big deal. You know, it's like, um, it's like touching the ark. Right? So it's going to fall. I'll touch it. You know, when, when, he, when Uzzah touched that ark, everybody's like, wow, and God strikes him dead right away. Seems a bit overkill, doesn't it? But let me ask you this. Because you, you, I, I could see me doing that. I could see me kind of going, oh, it's falling. But if it was a, um, a bucket of molten lava and it started falling, I don't see me touching it. <laughs> the problem is that Uzzah had forgotten that it was much hotter than lava. You know what I mean? He, he, and the, the way it was being carried was wrong. The whole approach to that was wrong. And there needs to be a healthy fear of God. And, we, and I talk about it every Sunday when we do the Lord's Supper, Right? 
there needs to be a healthy fear of God when we're handling the things that are holy. Hezekiah lost this, and the result of this was all those things are going to end up in Babylon. Your own kids are going to end up in Babylon, and there's going to be this great period of slavery. And here's Hezekiah, in my argument, in, in my estimation, very shallow and short-sighted response at the very end of this entire thing in 2 Kings 20:19. Then Hezekiah said to Isaiah, The word of the Lord that you have spoken is good. For he thought, why not, if there will be peace and security in my days? See, some people take that a number of ways. I take that as him going, look at, I just want things to go well now. And if that means that future generations are going to get hung out to dry, so be it. Things are going well now. Maybe during Q&A you can talk to me about John Maynard Keynes and fractional reserve banking. <laughs> That's such an inside joke, but I think it really applies in terms of just not considering the future. Well, I think the lesson for today's church are numerous. I think one of them is considering our future. The other is this idea of union, intimacy, and shared vision with the world, allowing the world to become part of the church and recognizing that, no, the, the world needs to be clearly delineated Affected by the church, yes, but not brought into the church in that capacity. Hezekiah was short-sighted, and I think uh, Lamentations applies well to him, where we read in Lamentations 1.9, she, that is Jerusalem, took no thought of her future, therefore her fall is terrible. You've got to think about the future. Now, within 100 years or so, going back to our story here in the Old Testament, give or take 100 years, we see the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy, but there's going to be a bit of a turn. You all know the story, right? Daniel, Meshach, Shadrach, Abednego, they all, that, they're part of that group brought into Babylon. And now we're in chapter 5. So Nebuchadnezzar is no longer king. Belshazzar, his son, is king. And he's throwing a big old party. And in this party, he decides to break out the good China. All right? And what do you think that good china is? Yeah, all the stuff they found in the temple. Hey, let's get the golden goblets out. Well, let's get, the, you know, let's get those plates out. And all of a sudden, the party, and they're drinking. They're drunk. And what are they doing? They're toasting to the gods of wood and stone and iron and gold. And it's kind of like all this thing, all this mockery is taking place. God had been so patient with Babylon. Right? But it's almost as if here, this is the last straw. I think the fact that we had the second commandment up today really applies here in a big way. This idea that God's going, look it, I'll put up with all of your shenanigans. But the moment you take that which was designed to be holy and you use it in an unholy manner, you have crossed the Rubicon. And your days are numbered. You're done. Well, you know the story it's here that the finger of God invites itself, himself, to the party. All right? And all of a sudden, Belshazzar gets a text from God. And it's almost humorous what takes place here, right? It says his, loose, his lips get all loose. His knees begin to knock. I mean, if it wasn't horrifying, it would be kind of funny what's taking place here. And what does he do? He's like, I can't read that. I need to find somebody. It's like when I go to my teenagers and go, can you figure out this app? You know, I don't, he can't read it. 
So what does he do? I, I need to find the wise men in, my, in Babylon, all the astrologers and all. And can anybody read this? And if you can read it, I'm going to give you a chain of gold and third power and all of Babylon, and nobody can figure it out. And then something interesting happens. The queen finally speaks up. And she makes a suggestion that he utilize Daniel. Now, I, I have to say, as I was rereading this, I found her description of Daniel really remarkable. She says, he's a man in whom is the Spirit of God with wisdom and understanding. It's as if they all knew this. But they just weren't interested in a person like that. You know, there are certain environments where if you're a person filled with the Spirit of God with wisdom and understanding, we just don't need you here right now. You're not the type of person that fits into this occasion. And I do pray that all of us would be the type of people who would be filled with the Spirit of God, filled with wisdom, filled with understanding, that when the chips are severely down in the lives of other people, that they would say of you what the queen here says of Daniel. We need somebody with real wisdom here. We need somebody who really knows what's going on. And so she calls upon Daniel. So Daniel's brought to the king. And again, you know, the king's like, hey, I hear you're a really smart guy. I hear you can figure it all out. And if you can figure this out, I will give you the gold and I'll give you the third power. And Daniel goes, he goes, you know what? Keep your gold, keep your power, give it to somebody else. But I'll tell you what it means. You talk about a fearless position. You've got to realize that Belshazzar can kill Daniel like this. Like, it's not like Daniel gets a trial, right? So what does Daniel do? He goes, look at God taught your father a lesson. It was a hard lesson. He learned it, but apparently you didn't. And you've not humbled yourself before God. In whose hands are your very breath? Now, you're worshiping all these false gods. You got these implements, and you don't understand that there is a God in heaven who, if he decides your heart's not going to have one more beat to it, you're not going to have one more breath, you're done. And then he gives the interpretation. And one of the reasons that this came to my mind, because in the interpretation, we have yet another measurement. It's a, it's a, it's a, a measurement of weight. And we read in verses 26, 27, and 30, and 31, this is the interpretation of each word. Mene, God has numbered your kingdom and finished it. Tekel, you've been found, you've been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Paris, your kingdom has been divided and given to the Medes and Persians. And then we read in verse 30, that very night, Belshazzar, king of the Chaldeans, was slain. And Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. Well, there we have it. Your kingdom is done. Your kingdom is done, there's going to be a new kingdom. Well, first of all, as I already mentioned, God clearly does not take lightly the use of those things that he has deemed for holy purpose. I think we should always keep that in mind. Now, the measurement here was a measurement of weight. Belshazzar had been weighed and found wanting, and that night his kingdom was taken away. Now, let me jump forward a little bit to Christ himself. Because now we kind of understand what the way God's working here, right? Now, Jesus, in the temple, is confronted 
by the chief priests and elders, right? So now you've got this kind of like, they're always going after him. He's in the temple. The chief priests come up to him. They're like, you know, by what authority do you do this? And who do you think you are kind of dialogue? And they're always quizzing him and testing him and trying to get him to fail. And he tells this parable, the parable of the landowner. And we're going to see one of the reasons here why I don't think this is talking about the end of the world, as a lot of people say. And I think it should become apparent to you. Now, in that parable, the landowner leases a vineyard out to vine dressers, right? He owns a vineyard, and he leases it out to vine dressers. I'll just tell you in advance, I think the vine dressers are Israel, right? You have a responsibility to take care of my stuff. And then he sends servants to these vine dressers. And what do they do to them? What do they do to the servants? They kill them. So what does the landowner decide to do? I'll send my son. Certainly they won't kill my son. He sends his son. Now he's telling this story to the chief priests and elders. I'll send my son. And then they're like, well, do you know what they do to a son? They kill his son. And then Jesus asks a question, and the chief priests and the elders, I think unwittingly, pronounce their own judgment. So Jesus says, what do you think that landowner is going to do when he comes back? What's going to happen? They said to him, Matthew 21, 41, this is the, these are the religious leaders talking. He will destroy those wicked men miserably. See, it's almost like um, David and, um, who's the prophet? Uh, Nathan, yeah. You, it's, it's a you are the man moment, right? They will, he will destroy those wicked men miserably and lease his vineyard to other vine dressers. Who do you think that is? Well, we're going to see in a second. The other vine dressers is the New Covenant Church who will render to him the fruit in their seasons. Jesus said to them, Have you never read in the Scriptures the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken from you, chief priests, elders of Israel, and given to a nation bearing the fruits of it, the church, the new covenant church. And whoever falls on this stone will be broken, but on whomever it falls, it will grind him to powder. Let me tell you, Revelation 11 is the grinding to powder coming from Christ. Now, when the, now, now this is why I don't think it's the end of the world. Now, when the chief priests and Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking of some future generation thousands of years from now. No. They're like, he's talking about us. Well, that physical temple would be destroyed, and that temple, was, as I said, it's like it was excommunicated. That temple is now in the outer court, and I would say, what a warning for churches, for buildings that have a cross on them. What a warning for buildings that have a pulpit. What a warning for buildings that have the sacraments but have rejected the true Christ. Is it possible for that to take place? Yes. As a matter of fact, it's in this very context that the Apostle Paul is warning us. Like he's, It's almost like he's going, you are, you are understanding, and this is in Romans 9, 10, 11, you are understanding what God is doing to Israel. That, that, that they're cut off because of a lack of faith, 
And then he's perceiving that, you know, but though you, the new church, this new international church, which is made of Jew and Gentile, just in case you're thinking about getting cocky, he goes, you know, it can happen to you. The same thing can happen to you. The same thing can happen to us. We read in Romans 11, 19 through 22, then you will say, branches were broken off that I might be grafted in. In other words, the Israelites are out, I'm in. That is true. They were broken off, why? Not because they were Jewish. They were broken off because of unbelief. But you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note then the kindness and severity of God. Severity toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. So we look at this and we're going, you know, am I in the outer court? Or am I measured by God as a true worshiper? Am I part of the true temple? Am I a living sacrifice? Now this temple, this altar, the true worshipers, they are not going to be part of what's going to happen to that outer court. That's the direct application here is that they are not going to find themselves under the judgment of the Roman armies. We've gone over that over and over and over again. They, they all headed to Pella. There were a million Jews killed. Not one Christian was killed. So we see this take place. But here's the thing that I think is so important for us to grasp. The wrath that these people were rescued from that would have come at the hand of the Roman armies is not worthy to be compared to the wrath of God that falls upon all of those who are not actually true worshipers, truly the temple, truly living a life where their lives are marked by being living sacrifices. And you have to ask yourself, you have to ask your question, is, is that me? If, guy, if the eyes of God are searching to and fro throughout the land to strengthen the hearts of those who are fully committed to him, Am I included in that number? This isn't just a history lesson. Did that apply? Was there an original application to, in the first century? Absolutely. But as I've said many times, the things we read in the Revelation, just like any other book in the New Testament, or in the Old Testament for that matter, to whatever extent we find ourselves in similar situations apply to us as well. And we need to ask ourselves, am I in fact part of the true temple of the living God? Because being judged in history by some guy with a, with, a, with a knife or a gun is nothing compared to being judged in eternity from the piercing eyes of a holy God. And I pray that all of us will stand in that judgment by the blood of Christ. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we do pray that our focus and our hearts would not be upon even the outward implements designed to glorify Christ, even as we come to the Lord's Supper, as we find ourselves engaged in baptism, as we sing praises, as we pray, may all of that have, a, have as its target the glory of the living God, a God who determined to send His Son to rescue us from sin and death. May our hearts ever, Father, be focused upon Jesus his work, his person, who he is, what he is doing even now, and what we can look forward to throughout all of eternity, we pray in his name. Amen.